E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Anne Parant of Domaine Parant and also Jacques Parant Co. in Pomar on the show. Hello, how are you? Fine, thank you. Very nice to see you. Oh, me too. It's a pleasure. So you started professionally at the estate in 1998. Absolutely. I took over the management of the estate in 1998 with my sister, Catherine, after my brother and my father. So we are the 12th generation. And after 11 generations of male winemakers, I am the first generation of female winemakers, which is the second French Revolution. (laughs) In fact, you know, the family Parent is in the wine production since the beginning of the 17th century. The origin of the family is from Volney, and one of our ancestors decided to move to Pomar and get married with a a woman from Pomar. And uh, one of our ancestors also used to be the first supplier to Thomas Jefferson. Ah. Yes, Thomas Jefferson, when he spent a year in France as a kind of ambassador, he traveled a lot all over France. And when he arrived in Burgundy, he met my ancestor, Étienne Parent. And they began to be very good friends. Uh, Étienne Parent used to be a wine broker and also a wine guide for him. And Thomas Jefferson bought some wines from him and also some vines. And when he went back to the United States to be the, the third president of the United States, you know, in Monticello, he tried to grow these vines and he doesn't succeed with wine growing in Monticello because it was too warm and uh, the varieties were not good for this kind of uh, winemaking. But he was really very interested and very curious. That's the 1700s. And then... What happens in the, the 1800s and 1900s? What happens during Phylloxera? Phylloxera was a disaster, of course. You know, in Burgundy, it was around 1878, between 1878 and 1880. And of course, the vineyards were destroyed by the Phylloxera. Uh, you know, it was before the French Revolution. The vineyards mostly were owned by the church and the noble family. We are not from the noble family. We are from what we call the medium class <laughs> family. But in fact, my family was able to own some vineyards. And we have, of course, after the phylloxera crisis, we needed to replant all the vineyards. And 
after the, the French Revolution, we were able to buy some vineyards also. We increased our family estate, which is now a little bit more than 25 acres. And 25 acres in Burgundy is not too small, but it's not too big also. Our estate is located in Pomar, so the heart of Côte de Beaune. We produce only wines from Côte de Beaune area. Two-thirds of the surface is located on Pomar and Pomar Premier Cru. We produce mostly red wines, and we have a small range of whites. And we have Grand Cru red and Grand Cru white. It's a, a diversity of appellation, but only focused on Côte de Beaune area. So when did certain parcels come into the family holdings? The two oldest vineyards we have in our family is Pomar Premier Cru, Les Chaponnières, and Beaune Premier Cru, Les Epenotes. And some of our grand-grandfather bought also some Pomar Premier Cru, Les Epenotes, but later. But in fact, we always had some vineyards on Pomar. And after... My um, grand-grandfather uh, fathers decided to buy also in Corton, which is very new in our family. For me, it's confusing to talk about the parents of Perron, you know what I mean? So, uh, parents, yes. <laughs> the translation is... You know, it's hard to, hard to ask about your dad, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but in fact, you know, my father, he took over the management when he was 19 years old. His first uh, vintage alone was 1954. And he decided to sell all the production in bottles, which was not the case with my grandfather. What was the style of your father's wines? My father, in fact, did organic wine growing, but without knowing what it was and without saying it was organic. And also now we are certified uh, and he didn't do that, of course. He was also exigent about handpicking and sorting. Uh, for him and for us, it's essential and it is the base of the work. You can't have perfect grapes. That's why to produce good wines, you have to choose the best grapes. So in fact, I changed the winemaking and the wine growing. But uh, when I think about that, I think perhaps I work like my father did, but uh, with a new expression, with uh, my own personality. So when I look at the vine age for your parcels, a lot of them are about 45, 50 years. So those would have been planted by your dad. Oh, yes. Uh, my dad did a great job. He replanted also some vineyards. When he went about planting, how did he do it? Did he use Massal? Did he get clones? What was his philosophy? We use and he used uh, both. Massal selection for our two oldest vineyards, we are in massal selections and we are trying to redo it. Right now, we are working with a nursery and with the two oldest uh, vineyards we have in massal selection, I would like to redo a selection on the same way. And uh, these two vineyards, for example, we observed, we have less disease and we have less death vines than on the others. So it's very interesting to try to redo this massal selection. Beside that, we have also some clones. The last 20 years, some organization did a great job to select also the quality for some clones and did a great research to have uh, very uh, good quality clones. But for us, what is interesting is to try a new way. The future for me and the great challenge will be 
to produce good waves, but also to resist to some diseases and not trying to go to uh, genetic uh, modified, uh, some kind like that, which I'm against that. So um, you know that uh, all over the world, even in Burgundy, the life for a vine is shorter than it was uh, 50 years ago. Sometimes you have to replant after 35 years, which is unusual in Burgundy. You know, the average age for vines is uh, 50 years old is not uh, rare. It's uh, normal. But now with some um, diseases, some wine growers, they need to replant uh, every uh, 30, 25, 30 years. In your area, it seems that hail has really increased in incidence in the last few vintages. So is that something that you have to think about in terms of hail netting or how you plant a vineyard? In fact, you know, hail is a phenomenon that we always had. Uh, the only difference is now with the global warming, the surface damaged by hail in 12, 13 and 14 in Côte de Bonne was huge. Uh, and this is a great changement. You know, it's like here in this country, when you're talking about tornadoes or hurricanes, you know, you always had uh, some tornadoes or some hurricanes, but the proportion now is much more. And also the intensity is higher. So, for example, we had a hail in 12, 13, 14. So we had bad luck with these three uh, vintages. But in fact, when you look in the history, you will see that hail, you have a, a kind of, of line from the west part of Burgundy to the east part of Burgundy, and it follows the Côte, the Côte Chalonnaise, Côte de Beaune, and Côte de Nuit. So to have hail, it's not unusual. What is unusual is to have hail three vintages, 12, 13, 14, and in the same proportion. Uh, the damage, we lost more than 50%, and this is unusual and it's disturbing us. And of course, we have to think about in the future these very hard and strong hailstorms. That's why we decided to do a test, to do an experimentation with nets, and we will see what happens. But we have to think in the future about this phenomenon, which of course did great damages on vines. Uh, but the damages made also by frost uh, is uh, sometimes more difficult for pruning than uh, after hail. It will take you three times longer after frost to do pruning than after hail. After hail, the consequences are immediately. Of course, pruning is difficult, but for frost, it's uh, so, so difficult to do because the vines will break. So you have to consider every vine and uh, that's why it, it will take you a long time to do pruning. You know, they have to think when they are in front of every vine, what I need to do. Do I need to go back in Cordon de Royat or do I need to go to Guyot? It's two different types of pruning and you have to think about uh, what you want to do. Of course, the estate was much more in Cordon de Royat, which was for me a very interesting pruning type because it was too regular also uh, to manage also the quantity. But these two years, uh, we have to go back to Guyot pruning because we need to restore wood in the vines and we need also to produce also some, uh, some grapes. So the regulation of quantity is not necessary anymore after this kind of vintages. But uh, that's why guillot pruning is, is interesting, especially after frost or hail. Basically, you have to start a new cane 
Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Because there's been damage to the canes that were there. Totally, totally. I bet that that kind of change hasn't really happened much in the history of the estate. There's probably few times where you change the pruning like that on a wide scale. Yes, but we need to do it because uh, if you need to restore wood, you know, you need to get back an energy in vines. And that's why one time you have to take a decision and say, okay, we need to go back to Guyot. But the vines, you know, the reaction of vines and the feedback we have from vines is uh, amazing because this plant is amazing. It will be damaged by hail or by frost and it's still alive. And it, uh, in two years, you can restore. You really connect that hail phenomenon, the incidence and the scope of it with climate change. You think they're related? Hail always exists, but how big it was... I think, of course, it's one of the consequences of the global warming. We have to be conscious about that. We don't have to be afraid in the same time. And for the winemaker that I am, of course, the challenge and my job is to adapt with what the nature gives me. And I will do my best. I will tell you two examples. 2013 was a very fragile vintage, a challenging vintage because first we had hail. And also it was a vintage uh, tender, not the same structure, not the same body as 2014 or 2012. So what was the challenge was not trying to extract too much, but just trying to keep the good point of 13, which was the fruit. The fruit was absolutely pure, very straight wines, but not with big body, not with big tannin, but delicious to enjoy young. So we reduce the maceration on skins. We reduce also uh, the proportion of new oak because this vintage was not able to support and to integrate a high proportion of new oak. But in the same time, now you will open 2013 and enjoy immediately. It's not a vintage to age too long. And I always uh, used to say that you don't have bad vintages. You just have bad winemakers or bad bottles. If you're a serious winemaker, you will produce good wines, excellent wines. Even the nature was not so perfect as 2005 was or 2015. Even the nature was not so concentrated as 2003 or 2014 was. So you just have to adapt your winemaking by what the nature will give you and not trying to do the same every vintage. Because you told me you had de-stemmed 12, 13, 14, but then you used some whole cluster in 15, for example. I destemmed 2012, 13, and 14 because we had hail. And hail damaged a lot the stems. It's like if you cut the skin, you know, you cut the stems. And after that, you can give to the wine some uh, green taste, which is not good. So the stems were not enough matured, were not enough healthy. And also the structure of grapes, the balance between stem and berries, because it was damaged by hail. So you lost a lot of berries. So if you saw the structure of a grape, you will have a stem and few berries. So if you put whole clusters of that, you will have more juice from stem than from berries. I was not very confident with that, so I chose to distempt. In the opposite, 2015, perfect grapes, very healthy, good maturity, stems in a perfect way. I chose to try to add a certain proportion of whole clusters. It can be 10 or 20 percent, 
And for my Grand Cru, I chose to do whole clusters. And it was great because, you know, the complexity we had with whole clusters, the aromas and the finesse was fantastic. So it was a perfect uh, example and a perfect vintage to try to use again. But for the rest, I'm not always confident with stems. So that's why I'm always very careful. Sometimes when I talk to burgundy collectors and aficionados, they tell me that in the old bottles, not Perron, but just in general for red burgundy, you can taste the taste of hail. If you didn't do what I said before, sorting throughout the fruit, of course, if you put all the grapes, even some dry berries damaged by hail in the vat, you don't have the same wine as if you did this uh, very strictly assortment. So if you don't do that, imagine you will put all the grapes in a vat. You can have a taste of ale, absolutely. Assortment and sorting throughout the fruit for me is essential, essential. I will give you some statistics. 2015, we sorted 0.05%. 2005, 0.5. In the opposite, 2004, we sorted 37%. It was the price to pay to have a very good quality. Uh, 2016, we sorted less than 5%. 2012, 13 and 14, it was between 7 to 10%. But it's essential. So starting since 98, I mean, I feel like you've seen a pretty broad diversity of vintages. There's been the ripe vintages like 99, 2005, 2015. There's been really cool vintages. 04 comes to mind. Maybe that also had other issues as well. There's been super hot vintages like three. As you've approached those differences, have you seen different vineyards respond differently to those conditions? You know, what is great for a winemaker is not to produce or not to have the same type or not to have these uh, stereotypized vintages. It's a great challenge, but also it's very exciting for me. Sometimes we can have also some big surprise. For example, 2003 for me was an amazing vintage. Hot, we picked in uh, the 18th of August for the whites at six o'clock in the morning. So it was very unusual in Burgundy. And we said to the people, oh, you know, 2003, jammy, nice concentration, etc., uh, etc. Et Don't age 2003. It's impossible to do it. And in fact, when you taste some 2003 right now, it's very surprising because they lost their jammy taste and some of them are dead, absolutely, but some are great. And even us, we were very surprised by the potential, in fact, and some other vintages sometimes needs time. Take, for example, 2011. 2011 was a vintage between 2010, which was for me uh, an amazing vintage, very precise, everything at the right place at the right time. And 2012, a nice concentration, a nice body, ripe tannin, ripe fruit, very expressive, very generous. So 11 was a little bit more serious. And we can say sometimes austere at the beginning. So people didn't like 2011 at the beginning, but now when you taste 2011, it's an amazing vintage. It opens more and more. And I think people will rediscover or retaste 2011 will be very surprised. So you have vintages to enjoy young. You have vintages with a great potential to age. And for me, it's fantastic because I, I will never make the same wine. I will never make the same vintage. Of course, I can say, oh, I would love to make again 2005 or 2002, which was one of my best vintage. 
But no, it's impossible to do. But in the same times, you will recognize some good winemakers, not with vintages easy to do. I mean, 2005, was, it was an easy vintage. We did nothing, nothing. Everything came easily. The winemaking was so easy. So you will not recognize a good winemaker with 2005. But 2004, I'm very proud. And I'm much more proud of my 2004 than 2005. Same with the vintages we had with Hale. Because it was not easy. Because when you have, in two minutes, all your production destroyed by Hale, uh, when you see my team, they work very hard in the vineyards and they were crying because it was impossible to see your work destroyed in a few minutes. That's, uh, that's awful, you know. So we were very proud to see the result and the quality of 12, 13 and 14. And same with 16. 16, we had this bad frost in April, but the quality is here. It's like they, what they say, good red burgundy is a wine of triage. Oh, yes. Yes. And also, you have to consider the weather forecast to determine the date of harvest. The most difficult decision to take for me is to determine the date of harvest. And some vintages, it's easier to do. Some other, sometimes, in one or two days, you know, you have to take the decision not to pick too late because you can be overripe, especially for whites. I can imagine that the weather reporting is probably better now than it was in the late 90s. Absolutely. The weather forecast, we have some special local informations about the weather. We have a lot of informations, but nothing will replace your own decision because you know yourself, your vineyards. So you have also to know which one will be earlier in advance, which one will be a little bit later etc., etc. So, of course, it is the most difficult decision to take is to determine the date of harvest. How do you see those vineyard expressions of Pomar? I mean, when you taste those wines and you know what that vineyard site is like, what shows in Epineau that doesn't show in Rougen, for example? In Pomar, you have two parts, in fact. The premier cru are divided in two parts. The northern part between Pomar and Beaune. The best-known premier cru of Pomar on this side is called Pomar Premier Cru Les Epenaux. Here, the soil is more clay, fine clay. At the bottom, you have the limestone, and on the surface, you have different parts of clay. For me, the premier cru produced in this part are more the finesse, the elegance, the complexity. You have the structure, but you have also this long finish, this precision, the silky tannin. On the southern part... Uh, between Pomar and Volney. Here, you have the second best-known Premier Cru, which is called Pomar Premier Cru Les Rugiens. The soils are in two parts. When you go in the direction of Volney, you have a big part of limestone. But when you're close to Pomar, you have brown clay, you have clay with iron oxide, a big part of iron oxide. Here, the wines have a certain character and personality, a great body, uh, the feet in the land. Both come from the same appellation. Both are the same level of quality, premier cru. But you have totally different expression. Some are more generous or expressive than some others. You have some premier cru a little bit shy at the beginning, but they open more and more. And they have a kind of distinction. Uh, Les Epenaux, for me, Pomar Premier Cru Les Epenaux is certainly the high fashion of Pomar. 
The Most Mysterious, premier cru. Euh, pomard, premier cru, les Rugiens, et certainly the biggest pomard, very masculine, with a great potential to age. So, uh, some people said, oh, pomard has the finesse, the elegance, but pomard can be also very masculine. It's true, it's absolutely true. And what is also very special in pomard is, it's only a red wine, we don't have a white pomard, and uh, we don't have a, a grand cru, not yet. Not yet, because we, we are trying to upgrade Pomar premier cru les Epenaux and Pomar premier cru les Rugiens. Historically, these two premier cru were proposed in the classification of grand cru. But in 1935, when the, the French organization decided to do an official classification, um, the wine growers from Pomar They didn't agree. Some of them agreed with that and some of them were afraid to be classified in Grand Cru because you had to pay a lot of taxes and the average production was also lower than for Premier Cru. So, in fact, the French organization, INAO, said, okay, okay, some part of you agree, some part of you not. So, we will wait. And, in fact, we didn't propose again the classification in Grand Cru. So five years ago, we decided with the wine growers of Pomar to propose and to try to upgrade these two premier cru in Grand Cru. Uh, it will take a long time. It's a long, uh, long process. We are not sure to obtain this uh, classification in Grand Cru, but I think definitely Pomar deserves a Grand Cru. There's not so many Grand Crus in red in the Côte de Bonne, really. In Côte de Bonne, the only Grand Cru red is Corton. And Corton is the only Grand Cru in Burgundy to be both red and white. Mostly of the Grand Cru white are in Côte de Beaune, mostly of the Grand Cru red are in Côte de Nuit, but it's not uh, fixed. I mean, uh, why we can't have one more Grand Cru red in Côte de Beaune? Why we can't uh, upgrade uh, some village level in Premier Cru, uh, like uh, the southern part of uh, Burgundy are trying to do it, Saint-Véran, etc., in, in the Maconnais, they are trying to have uh, some premier cru level. It's normal, but we, we have to see and uh, the price of the land will be also different. So, Pomar Epineau, I've seen other people bottle Grand Epineau, which is kind of a smaller slice. So, you blend Petit Epineau and Grand Epineau into an Epineau, and why do you make that choice? Now, in fact, we choose to blend Les Grands Epineaux and Les Petits Epineaux. We have both, about 50% of each, and My grandfather decided to do that because he considered if you have Grand Zepeneau on a label, it's great because Grand means big, great, and uh, uh, Petit means small. So in the mind of the people, you know, Petit is not the same quality as Grand. And for us, it was not interesting to divide and to have two different premier cru of Les Epeneaux, Grand and Petit. So that's why we decided to blend both. But I should say that we do a separate analysis for the maturity. We observed these two vineyards. And mostly of the time, I found Petit Zepeno as a touch of something better than Grand Zepeno. That's why we decided to blend. And it's interesting because you have the same name of a crew, but in two different villages. So you have a Bon Epeno and a Pomar Epeno. In fact, we have Bon Premier Cru Les Epenotes, And les épenotes means the feminine touch, hein, the feminine translation of les épenotes. It's the same etymology, but 
The soil is different because you have one step lower for the bone. And les épenots has this very fine clay. Uh, bone premier cru les épenotes. Um, bone is usually more feminine than pomar. But because it's very close pomar, this bone premier cru, les épenotes, has something that you can find again in pomar. A certain body, a certain structure. But it doesn't have the same distinction as pomar premier cru les épenots. When you see in the geology, you have a step uh, lower for bone. In bone, you have a deeper clay, a deeper soils than with les epono. Uh, mostly of the time, the clay will give you the finesse and the elegance, and limestone will give to the wine the structure, the body. So it's less close to the bedrock. Yes. No, that makes sense. And then back to Pomar for a minute, for Rougen. I mean, I hear people say that the part closer to the road is a little different than the part further in, and is, is that true, or do you find differences within Rougen as a crew? Rugienba is the best, of course. Yes, the, the Rugienba is the most interesting uh, premier cru of les Rugiens, definitely. Yes, it has this kind of intensity, depth, and uh, the aging potential is great. It comes from the soil, and the soil, as I said, is brown clay, but with iron oxide. And Rugien means rouge, which is in French means red. And red because it comes from the color of the soils and especially this kind of iron oxide you find in uh, Les Rugiens. The other premier crews of Pomar, or the other Ludis of Pomar that you make, do they divide up into those two camps? as one more yes. to the north? And... Yes. For example, on the northern part, we have Pomar premier cru Les Argilières, Pomar premier cru uh, Les Epenaux. Uh, we have also Pomar premier cru Les Arvelets, Pomar premier cru Les Pézerolles. On the other side, we have Pomar premier cru Les Chaponnières, Pomar premier cru les croix noires, Pomar premier cru les chanlins. So it's really two parts and two different characters and personality. So if I were looking for something like Rougen, but I wanted to try something different, the Chaponnière would be... Chaponnière will be great. Chaponnière for me is the most generous premier cru. Very expressive, it's very friendly, and a wine with a great sensuality. You know what I mean? A great sensuality. Really, it will take you in its arms. For me, it's... A I can say my favorite premier cru with Les Epenaux, definitely. A part is 79 years old. It's interesting to see the soil and to see uh, how healthy for a 79 years old vine it is. It was difficult for me to get a grasp on Pomar when I was younger and trying to learn about the region because I thought of it, well, it's a Cote de Bonne Red, kind of like Volnay, so it's more elegant and lighter. And I would find wines that were like that, which it seems like what you're saying is that those are in the northern sector. And then I would find other wines that were meatier and bigger and broader and darker, more intense. So I had a hard time understanding what I was getting into sometimes, whereas I found Volnay a little bit more consistent, more on the elegance, more on the red fruit. And so learning about Pomar has been a little bit of a challenge for me over my career, to be honest with you. What is fascinating in Pomar is these two expressions. It can be a very serious wine, but it can be a very delicate and with a, a great finesse and elegance. So, of course, you can find some comparison with some other appellations, like for the finesse, Chambol Musini, for example, for the structure, Jevray uh, Chambertin. The diversity and the richness is not a handicap. For me, it's a great uh, advantage, and uh, you will never stop to learn about Burgundy and about appellations like Pomar. What is really special also in Pomar is the structure of the fruit. The fruit also expression is more on big, juicy cherries. 
for example, and will be also with a touch of spiciness. And this is really from Pomard. The spiciness you can find in Pomard is always observed by many people who taste a lot of Pomard. We used to say Volnay is more elegant and Pomard is more full-bodied. But in fact, also, you can find these two expressions on the two villages. Another appellation where you have some diversity and you're kind of showing the appellation through different prisms is Corton because you make red Corton and white Corton from different parts of the hill. Our two Cortons are located on the top of the hill of Corton, but on the top of the village called La Doisérini. Uh, you know, the hill of Corton is located on three villages, Pernon, Vergelès, Allos Corton and La Doisérini. Mostly of the whites are located, Corton Charlemagne is located between Pernon, Vergelès and Allos Corton. But our white, for example, comes from a lieu-dit called Enronnier et Corton. And it's on the top of the hill, but on Ladois side, on Ladois Serini side. So that's why it's uh, very rare, because uh, it doesn't come from mostly of the Corton Charlemagne. If I have the right to put Corton Charlemagne on the label, but I don't want to do it, because for me it's not logical, and it's more rare and more normal to put Corton white. The Corton red comes from a part called Les Renards. Les Renards means the female fox. And you can always find a touch of wildness in this Corton. The soil of Corton is limestone, but it's much more than limestone. It's rocks. Behind the hill of Corton, you find a lot of quarries. So you can imagine also the constitution and the, the structure of the hill of Corton. You don't have a big part of earth. You're immediately on stones, on rocks. That's why this wine has great structure. But for the red, you have a bigger part of clay on the surface. When you're tasting a Corton Charlemagne and you're tasting your Corton Blanc, do you see differences of yeah. expression from where it is on the hill? The, the Corton white has more tension, is more vibrant, and not the same richness as Corton Charlemagne. It can be a little bit austere at the beginning, but it opens more and more and it has a great complexity. And a long finish, a long length. You can find also on Corton White a little bit touch of saltiness. My father decided to replant Corton Red and he decided to replant in white. It was in 1990. He decided to replant because he considered the soil was much better for white than for red. And he was absolutely right. But in the opposite, the red, Les Renards, I think will be not good for whites. It's perfect for reds. Reynard is one of the most famous of the Corton Red Ludis. So how would you compare it to some of the other Ludis? Les Renards, the name is absolutely the truth. The wildness, the Renard, the female fox. A touch of animal. If you taste an old Corton, you have this touch of animal. Very meaty, a nice intensity. The fruit is always dark, very intense. It integrates very well the new oak. You can age very long Corton. So Les Renards, for me, is uh, really very subtle, but with also a touch of whiteness. Needs more time than some other Corton that you can enjoy younger. When the wines go to market, are there certain wines that you recommend drinking a little sooner or certain bottlings you recommend drinking Absolutely. a little later? Some Premier Cru, for example, like we said, Pomar Premier Cru Les Epenaux and Pomar Premier Cru Les Rugiens are Premier Cru to age longer than the others. And in Premier Cru, you have Les Argilières, which is always very well open, that you can enjoy younger. Since taking over in the late 90s, you've seen a lot. What's the next step for Parent? Our next step 
is we are very interested to buy some vineyards, not only in Côte de Beaune, but in Côte Chalonnaise. Also, we would like to build a new cuverie. We are waiting for the next generation. <laughs> they are uh, at school right now. They are students or they live their life. But we expect to have one uh, working with us. The forefathers of Amparant moved from Volnay to Pomar to build a new house. And now she's waiting for the next generation. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Amparant of Domaine Parent in Pomar as well as Jacques Parent Company. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. When you see the etymology of the name Pomar, the name Pomar comes from Pomona, the goddess of fruit, and Pomarium, which is in Latin, means the orchard. So you can imagine the richness of this village and this appellation.